Hi, I'm NASM Master Instructor Rick Ritchie. Join me for the NASM CPT Podcast, where we take you through a unique journey on everything you need to know as a personal trainer. Science, technique, physiology, weight loss, muscle growth, nutrition, business. We dig into it all. You can find the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Just search NASM CPT Podcast and subscribe. Welcome to our Strong Mind, Strong Body podcast. I'm so glad that you joined us here. And today, my name is Angie Miller. I'm an NASM master instructor and a mental health therapist. And today, we have an amazing topic called How to Help Clients Stop Hating Their Body. And I chose this topic today because I think that it is a great opener for how we talk to ourselves how we talk to our clients, how we talk to our daughters, our family members. There's so much stigma in our society about body image, how we're supposed to look, the size that we're supposed to be. And so the person that I picked to be on my show today, she is Dr. Morgan Francis, and she specializes in how to help clients stop hating their body. Dr. Morgan Francis is a body image expert, and she is in Scottsdale. She works for Scottsdale Premier Counseling, and I think she's just going to be such an amazing contributor to this topic, because really my goal is, is that in this segment, we talk about how to help our clients build body acceptance and body confidence that translates into everyday life, how to change their perception of who they are and change how or change their perception of how they look to how they feel. So Morgan, I'm gonna let you introduce yourself. Hi, well, thank you so much, Angie, for having me here. Um, it was really great watching the promo video because there was several faces that I recognized from my time working at Lifetime Fitness here in Scottsdale. Um, so that was really fun to see. So. Again, thank you so much for having me here, and I'm looking forward to us diving into the topic of body image because I could talk about it all day long. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And you know, you've built a practice on it, and I think both of us in our work, my work in mental health, my work in fitness, your work in fitness and in mental health, we both come across so many people where body image is such a big uh, foundation to, um, to how they feel about themselves when they come into the gym. They come to us with so much history from disordered eating to perceptions that are familial-based, society-based, you name it. And so I think that the first thing that I want to delve into with you and I is I really want to talk about guilt and shame. And the role of guilt and shame and body perception and image and what that looks like when clients come to us. You know, maybe the difference between guilt and shame and also how it plays out in clients' perception, again, of how they feel and how they look. Yeah, well, that's a great question. So in order for me to be just on the same page as some of your listeners, um, I'm going to go ahead and describe how I define body image. So body image is your attitudes, your beliefs, your feelings, your perception, how you experience your body. And that experience goes from all the way from the top of your head down to the bottom of your toes. And with that experience, it can be comprised of how we have had family interactions, genetics, trauma, 
relationship food, environment, and how we move our bodies. And so when I'm investigating and exploring a person's body image, I'm looking at the ways that their body image has affected their life. Um, and one of the ways is through mood disturbances, how it impacts our sexual intimacy and sexual health, feelings of femininity and masculinity, isolation, interpersonal relationships. And then the other one that you mentioned is guilt and shame. So oftentimes we feel guilty, right? We feel guilty what, with what we eat. I ate too much. I shouldn't have eaten that. We identify food as good or bad and they have it. It has this moral complex to it. Um, and then we can attribute that to shame. So the difference between guilt and shame is guilt is related to a behavior. I did something bad. Uh, shame is related to how we feel about ourselves. I am bad. So what happens with body image is that we oftentimes are seeing so many, you know, problems with the way that a person feels about themselves that shows up in their relationship with their food or the relationship, how they move or don't move their bodies, whether or not they're motivated or lacking motivation to come to the gym. So it's really important that as providers in the fitness world, that we are asking these questions and knowing that everything has to do with body image. Yeah, absolutely. And as fitness professionals, you know, um, our clients, we know in mental health, we do a long history and we dive deep into some of these perceptions and these ways that they view their body. But in, as the fitness professional who's working with a client one-on-one -on -one in training or even teaching group fitness classes, I'm just wondering what might be some, some things that they could look for, that fitness professionals could look for that might spotlight or highlight because I think a big perception of disordered eating or somebody having a, an eating disorder is that we can quote, see it, but that's, that's just, that's just a misperception. No, in fact, I'm a prime example of that. So I had an eating disorder for several years and the most compliments I received was actually during when I had my eating disorder because I was in a thin, um, and so we typically applaud uh, thinness, right? We automatically assume that that person has it all together and that they're doing really well, right? We attribute a lot of positive aspects to thinness, and then we attribute a lot of negative aspects to people in larger size bodies, which really is one of the you know definitions of diet culture. We pedestalize and we put make people that um, are in thinner bodies, you know, uh, you know, on this moral superior kind of complex. Um, so it's really important that we recognize that right. we cannot tell, we cannot see whether or not a person has an eating disorder or is suffering from disordered eating. And, and those are two very different things. I just want to specify that. So eating disorder is what we would use to diagnose someone by the DSM, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, to basically they would meet the criteria for maybe binge eating, anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, or eating disorder not otherwise specified. And then disordered eating, right, are pseudo diet um, behaviors that we engage in. So maybe I am disordered eating, I don't eat, um, you know, at all during the day, and then I come home and binge at night, or um, not due to any type of allergies, I refuse to eat certain food groups, or I experience a lot of anxiety when I eat certain foods, or I refuse to eat anything after 4 p.m. So, you know, in some way, like we've normalized these behaviors, right? We've applauded them. They're part of, you know, lots of diets that are out there. For many people, 
people, it causes a lot of obsession and compulsion with food. So it's really important that we don't just look at somebody and say, oh, I think they have this or don't have this. And instead mm -hmm. we actually get to know the person. One of the things I would suggest for any, you know, personal trainers or any fitness professionals that are working with their clients is to start to recognize how the client talks about themselves, um, the negative critical talk. Um, because as we all know, the most important conversation we're going to have in the day is the one with ourselves. So you, you may be applauding your client and encouraging them and, you know, really trying to motivate them and boost their clients. But when they get home and they are berating themselves, they are judging themselves and picking themselves apart every time they step on the scale or off the scale or look in the mirror, then that's the relationship you need to start investigating with. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, I'm really glad that you mentioned that because in, in my podcast last week, we actually talked about how clients talk about themselves. We're in our session with you and how telling that is if they have a negative inner critic and they, they have a lot of strong dial, negative dialogue with themselves. We generally hear that in our session, but I love the way that you clarified that, um, that, you know, we, we can't see, uh, an eating disorder. And, and again, there's a difference between a diagnostic, you know, eating disorder versus disordered eating and society does sort of kind of like how we, uh, glamorize stress. We sort of glamorize, um, you know, things like, you know, oh, I don't eat after four, all these strict food rules that we've kind of conceptualized are made up and, uh, to be, uh, to be thinner, to fit some societal stereotype. So the most addictive food, I ask this all the time, you know, what's the most addictive food? How can I make sure I don't eat the most addictive food? Is it cookies and ice cream? Is it pizza? You know, what is it, right? And time after time, I always tell people the most addictive food is the one you don't allow yourself to have, right? Because it's a law of scarcity. We want what we can't have. And so if I make that something unavailable, I'm going to want it more. And we, we, we do this all the time, you know, whether it's in relationship with our food, but even with our jobs, right? Like I want the position that is hard to get. I want the car that I can't afford. I want to be the person that doesn't really want to be with me, right? So it's always about what we can't have. And as humans, we're, we're just wired that way. So it's really important that we allow the foods to be readily available, take away the scarcity, and make sure that we're food freedom instead of using fear um, and you know forbidden foods as a tattoo about you know, nutrition or weight loss. I love that. I love that we always want what we can have. And I always, you know, I always talk about that um, with anything, you know, what's if you're, if you're thinking about what you can't have, you're thinking about what you can't have. That's what's on your mind is that it's that deprivation. You know, if I tell myself I can't have chocolate today, that's all I'm going to think about is the fact that I want chocolate today. But if I allow myself chocolate, I just get that out of my mental space and I take away this, this sense that I am not only depriving by myself, but punishing myself by not allowing any chocolate. So the other thing, um, Morgan, that you and I talked about is just the functionality of the body and how sometimes to pivot the conversation, we have to remind our clients of what our body is capable of from a functional standpoint, what we can achieve and what our body can do for us to build body confidence versus what does our body look like or what do we weigh on a scale? Body appreciation is a term that I use that comes out of the idea of body neutrality. So a while ago, you know, there was a movement uh, around body positivity. And so body positivity was used to, um, more marginalized um, bodies, um, bodies that are not, you know, really seen on 
you know, the mainstream media and to pr promote, you know, positivity um, for people that um, were really being oppressed. And what happened is mainstream media got a hold of this term and started to then promote it in their wellness programs and their nutrition programs and really kind of lost sight of what body positivity was really about and who it was mostly made to, to serve. Um, and so then came the term of body neutrality. And body neutrality is really just having a very neutral feelings and attitudes and beliefs about your body. So instead of saying, I have large arms, I have human arms. Instead of saying, I have big legs, I have human legs. So one of the techniques and skills I teach a lot of my clients is when they are starting to become critical of a body part, let's say it's their stomach, um, then I'll ask them, okay, well, what does your stomach help you to do? Like, how does it serve you? And so oftentimes we're like, well, you know, because of my stomach, I'm able to digest my food because of my stomach. I have a really good, strong laugh. My stomach made to have that in and without my stomach, I wouldn't be able to do all the things I like to do, like walk or run or move my body. So we research shows that when we move into body neutrality, we actually start to improve our mood. When we go into focusing on our body's aesthetics, like what it looks like or the shape and the size or what it's supposed to look like and compare it to people that, you know, are not our bodies, then we feel worse about ourselves. So it's really important for individuals to move from comparison and move towards body neutrality. Yeah, I absolutely love that. And that's a great tool to use with our clients. And that's something that fitness professionals could do and still kind of stay in their lane and in their spaces. You know, what does your stomach allow you to do? What do your arms allow you to do? And to remind them that each of these parts makes us human. Um, we don't have to stigmatize them or talk about what we don't like about them. And, you know, that was actually going to be my next question is what are some tools that, you know, some fitness pros can use in order to kind of help clients respect and appreciate their body. And that's an amazing tool, what you just said. And what are some other things that fitness pros can do during a session? You know, they can talk, they can listen to our clients and we can talk about making sure there's not too much negative inner dialogue. And we can kind of help them reframe that negative inner dialogue. We can also help them talk about what their body can do. What are some other tools that you think fitness pros can use or some tools that you use to help clients appreciate their body? Yeah. One of the things I would say is move away from the mirror. What research shows is the more time we spend in front of the mirror, the more we're going to focus on what our body looks like. Now, understand that we need to have form and good form, but a trainer at this point should be able to correct, correct form or enhance form without using a mirror. So it's really important to move away, you know, from the mirrors, um, go into an area of the gym if you're inside or take your client outside um, to help them feel more connected to their body instead of looking at the image of their body while they're doing the, the exercise. Another really key thing is to stop making comments around, you know, no pain, no gain, you know, let's burn off what you ate over the weekend, you know, time to burn the calories, you know, like forcing the person to go to a really uncomfortable place in order to get achievement or get the results that they're supposed to get. Um, and instead meet the client where the client's at, meaning like, 
let's move and let's work from the inside out. So what do you need to let go of today? What is something that's bringing you frustration in your life? And let's get that out as we lift these weights. You know, let's talk about resiliency. Let's talk about this as a form of self-care rather than self-punishment. So in the permission to feel good, to honor their body while they're working and noticing that this is a very strong, you know, connection to their feelings and talking about the stress that's getting in the way of them feeling comfortable and safe in their bodies. Yeah, I absolutely love that. I really like the idea of getting away from the mirrors. I like the idea of being able to go outside and, and do other things so that it's focused on body empowerment and confidence versus looks. And you're right, there is obviously paying attention to form, but that is what the trainer is there for, is to help a client be aware of their form and to help that client gain body intuition. If you didn't have a mirror in, in front of you, having the intuitive ability and the kinesthetic awareness to be able to move our body through space without having to look in the mirror all of the time. And I love your you know, deep dive into body neutrality and kind of getting them there and talking about, you know, and we talked about that last week too in my podcast is sometimes just giving them space to get out whatever is on their mind when they come in. But I like the way that you reframe that and said, give them that space through the exercises that they're doing. So whatever it is that's holding them back or whatever those limiting beliefs, putting those into the exercises, which then translates into body confidence and the gym being an empowerment place. Yes, exactly. Gym being a safe place, because I know for a lot of clients, they have felt unsafe or unwelcome coming into a gym. And I would never want anyone to feel that way. I'd love to honor their body diversity, honor where they're at, rather than thinking that there's something with where they're at. We really want to make the gym a welcoming space for all different body types and shapes and sizes, right? Because that's what it's supposed to be. And we're never going to have one size fits all. We're never going to have one program that works for the exact same person. Like as a therapist, as I'm sure you know, Angie, I don't have one treatment plan that I give to all my clients. Everybody's different and everybody's in their own journey with their relationship with their body. And it could have been an injury that they're rehabilitating from. It could have been a loss. It could have been something genetic. It could have been just a season where they were really struggling with their own mental health. And so they weren't making choices out of self-respect, but more out of self-loathing. So it's really important that, again, we go to where the client's at rather than trying to put our agenda onto the client. Yeah, absolutely. Personalizing the workout, but also personalizing our connection with that person, right? So... Because again, all of our clients come to us with a different story. So as you said, the way that we approach our work with them, we have to you know, write a story with them that looks different from the story that we wrote with our last client. So, you know, in talking about some of those, those strategies and staying kind of with that, um, what are some other things that you think that fitness professionals would really benefit from understanding when it comes to body perception and some of the best ways to shift the narrative and get clients into a more confident mind space, despite the plethora of messages that they're seeing all over social media? You know, I wrote a blog years ago called, you know, um, how to help clients hate exercise if they don't already. And a lot of it was just about a lot of the stigma and perceptions that we put about exercise being about the way that we look. And for some people, it just seems to be a futile effort if that's what it's all about. For some of the people I work with, 
they just want to be able to go up the stairs without being breathless. They want to be able to tie their shoes and not experience pain. So, you know, I think it's really important that we broaden how we are experiencing and teaching, you know, the client about movement and making it much more functional, right? Because so many of us are just spending so much time on the computer or our phones. And so being able to connect is really important. The other thing I would suggest is making sure that the trainer looks at their own relationship with their body image. You know, what's their journey been? Um, and I talk about this with, you know, parents because they'll bring in their child or teenager and they'll ask me, you know, how do I make sure that my daughter doesn't hate her body? And really what the parent is asking me is how do I make sure my daughter doesn't hate her body the way that I've hated mine or the way that I've struggled with my body? And so really, you know, children learn through social modeling, monkey see, monkey do. So it's really important that as parents and as trainers and as a mental health professional, you know, we look at our own relationship with our body, notice where we may get triggered, notice our blind spots, notice our own biases, and really start to follow more body diverse um, accounts, read books that have, you know, talk about, you know, the political views when it comes to diet culture and food really to start to educate ourselves so that we can have um, a better way of connecting with the person that we're serving yeah i absolutely love that because you're right a lot of times when we wonder how can i help my client love their body how can i help my daughter love their body how can i help my sister love their body so much of that comes from you know i have to get there first we can only take somebody as far as we ourselves have gone and so you're right, we have to tap into what have my own uh, personal struggles with food been. And we know that food can be a drug, just like drugs or alcohol or so many other things. And it can be used to treat the body and help the body be healthier. It can be used as sort of a form of self-sabotage. And so I think that it is really important that we tap into our own journey with food. And that's why I hope a lot of trainers tap into this show today to kind of talk about that and, and start to step back and think, what is my journey with food? And what is my perception of myself? When I look in the mirror, what do I see? And what are some of the messages that I've received over the years I've internalized and it shifted the way that I look at me and look at exercise and look at the female body, the male body, whatever it is. Absolutely, and that's exactly the work, right? For us to be able to look at the experience and be able to communicate that and be authentic in that you know, vulnerability or self-disclosure when it would benefit the client, right? And it really, and again, self-disclosure is mainly used in my field when it would benefit the client to know. So if I'm working with a for somebody who struggled with an eating disorder, it actually makes them feel safe to know that I've actually also had struggle with an eating disorder, right? So if there's a trainer that has gone through their own injury or their own difficult season of life, it might be really appropriate then to be able to share, yeah, I went through that too. So it's okay to, you know, not just be like this person who's just, you know, showing you exercises, really develop a deeper relationship and a connection. Because as we know, we're the reason people stay with us is because of the relationship. It doesn't matter how many degrees you have or, you know, how affordable or not affordable your program is. They, they want to stay with you because of the connection right? Because they feel like you can understand them. So it's really important that, you know, trainers allow themselves to be human, right? Human first, trainer second. And that's what I always say to myself. I'm human first, a therapist second. And so there's a lot of um, 
you know, goodness that, you know, trainers can bring to a person's life. And it's, it's, it's wonderful to see that relationship continue to develop. Um, both my husband and I, like I said earlier, both worked at Lifetime Fitness and here in the local uh, area of Scottsdale. And, you know, I, I've had so many wonderful conversations with people that have taken my fitness classes and they open up to me about, you know, their personal struggles or um, diseases or illnesses that they've suffered or injuries or setbacks or cancer. So it's really important that they feel safe to connect. Um, and because that's what's going to bring them back. Yeah. And I think that that's an important thing to talk about, too, is, you know, we don't have to share information if it's gratuitous, but it's not gratuitous if we come from that space. And if we've had experience in it, like you said, both in mental health and in fitness. And I think giving clients the opportunity to be a safe space to disclose and then being able to say, I'm so glad that you trusted me. I'm so glad that you believe in me. And I want you to know that I'm here with you. But I also think that it might be beneficial if you were to talk to your primary care physician or you were to go to talk to somebody who specializes in, in body dysmorphia or body image situa body image issues in the mental health field and kind of be able to take them to a safe space that's outside of our realm. And then ideally work with that person. So you work with a collaborative team to kind of help benefit that person and get them where they need to be, both on the fitness floor, but also in the mental health world and the physical, you know, working with their physician, whatever it might be. But we can collaborate with experts outside of our field and really, really benefit our client in ways that will help them grow exponentially. It's a team approach and we can um, access the special specialty of other professional relationships with those professionals in order to get the most for that client because that's what it's all about how we can serve how we can help and making sure that we're looking at we're taking a, a more of a whole well-rounded holistic approach and not just only focusing on one thing so definitely like you know in my line of work as I'm sure you you as well, you know, I work with psychiatrists, I have trainers, I work with orthopedic surgeons, I work with dermatologists, you know, it's it, the whole, the whole thing. So it's really important to have that communication. And when we can have that coordination care, it's ultimately going to be the most beneficial thing for the client. Yeah. To, to let clients know that they're not alone in their journey, you know, it's so much more common than they recognize. And and I was even thinking, you know, I, I wrote a blog recently about women in body image and, and I wrote about uh, the journey through um, our history with women and their body and the completely different sizes and shapes that women have been throughout history and what was considered a beautiful body. Um, a hundred years ago, what was considered a beautiful body in the 50s, the 60s, and the 70s. And it's it's remarkable and disheartening all at the same time that um, women's bodies are seemingly dictated by society and by the, the standards that society sets by what's perceived as beautiful in that, in that day, in that era, in that decade. And it can be really confusing for women and, uh, and really um, alter the way that they feel about themselves. And I think that that is why we're seeing so much more confusion around body image and body acceptance. Oh, yes. I mean, I could talk forever on this topic. Um, yes, that's, that's how diving, right? So we keep changing the standard in order to keep selling this, right? Um, and the standard is never meant to be reached. 
Um, and, and, and there's a lot of history um, for people to learn about um, how society, art, race, um, genetics, trauma, all of this affects the way that we think and we feel and we experience our bodies. Um, some of my favorite books um, that do a wonderful job of being able to talk about this um, is The Body is Not an Apology by Sonia Renee Taylor, uh, Feeling, Fearing the Black Body by Sabrina, and also Beauty Sick by Dr. Renee Englund. Um, if anyone is interested in diving deeper into understanding diet culture, beauty myth, um, um, you know, those would be some resources that I would suggest. Um, but it's, it's, it's impossible for anyone to stay up to the standards and why it's so important to um, not be uh, very conscious, be very conscious of what material you are taking in um, on your social media um, and really work on not following anyone's account that's making you feel worse or that you're comparing yourself to um, because it would produce much uh, negative minds about understanding the history of body image because there's a lot there's a lot to it yeah i'm really glad you said that and we can kind of put those note we can put those three books in the comments on facebook and uh and kind of set those out because i think that that's so true i think that there's a lot of reading to be done that reinforces this conversation that we're having but that really builds a platform of understanding for all of us because there's such a history especially for women um on body shape and size and acceptance and all of those things so you know if we were to kind of um if you were to add anything else for trainers from a mindset point of view or from some tools and techniques they can take on to the fitness floor. Is there anything else that you would add to kind of kind of build trainers' repertoire of knowledge around this subject? Yeah, so I think, you know, from an educational and knowledge perspective, I would say, you know, for the trainers to be versed in what different eating disorders can look like and, you know, the symptoms of the eating disorder not to think people thin bodies are people that have anorexia because we, as you and I probably mm -hmm. know that there's atypical anorexia and that doesn't mean it exists in society. Uh, and that binge eating does not mean that a person has to be large to be someone who's binge eating, that we can't tell a person's health based on what they look like. Um, and that's so important. Um, and then the other piece would to be really aware of disordered eating um, and how um, pay, like clients can get fixated on food. And I think it's really important that trainers know about the largest study done on dieting, which is the Minnesota Starvation Study that was developed after the World War II and the results that came from that study when it comes to looking at the relationship with food and restriction and then adding cal um, calories back into a person's diet and what that does to a person's physiological um, development and their psychological well-being. Um, so I think it's really important, again, just to have that education and then also really work on moving away from how the body looks. I've seen, um, I've worked with women that, um, you know, it was all about 
getting like the big booty, the big booty, right? I became just so obsessed with having a small waist and a big butt. And they end up causing a lot of internal harm to their organs or dehydration or they cause injury. So I think it's really important that we stop trying to move away from, again, like that ideal body beauty myth of the large, you know, butt and this, this really tiny waist because that's what's in right now and really move towards appreciating and honoring what that person's body looks like at that time. And of course, you know, for any women that are coming into the fitness field after having children, um, you know, it's different postpartum than, you know, pre-baby. Pre so it's really important then, you know, being educated and well-versed on, you know, postpartum, you know, body um, and what they went through during their pregnancies and deliveries. Um, so all these things, right, are really important to investigate and again, to make the client feel safe and comfortable talking about these things with you is super important because if you have no clue or don't know what it's like, I'm back. Um, and so we really want to have that retention, right? So we want to be able to contain the clients and developing that, you know, that there's seeing some results, also tapping into internal world and experience. So, um, you know, clearly, you know, fitness has come so far and there's so much technology and it's a lot for fitness professionals to know. Um, and yet it's such a great place for people to be able to transform their lives and feel really good and confident um, about their bodies. So I think there's def definite great opportunity there. Yeah, I do too. And I'm really glad that you mentioned, you know, journey with women's body because there's such a pivotal transformation for women from the college years to moving into motherhood years and postpartum to, um, you know, uh, menopause, all these different transitions and just honoring the body as it goes through these different transitions in life and honoring that the body goes through stages, this is the mind goes through stages. We grow and develop, you know, cognitively, we grow and develop in our physicality and our body has to adjust to these changes. So I think it's important to honor and respect those changes and teach our clients to honor and respect those changes. So I love some of the things that you've given. I love that you've given the books. And again, we'll write those out and uh, the study, the Minnesota study, and also just kind of these little tidbits of information, getting clients away from the mirror, getting them outside, listening to their inner dialogue, helping them reframe, paying close attention to how clients talk about themselves, and then just paying close attention to the difference between guilt and shame and clients internalizing all these beliefs that, um, that are actually limiting the way that they are able to move forward with their body and with their mind to become the healthiest version of themselves. So, you know, Morgan, I'm so glad that you came on. I know that it was a bit of a challenging connection, but I think that you are a world of insight and information. And I so appreciate your authenticity and sharing that with us and giving us tools to kind of help our clients in the fitness space. Oh, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. It's just an honor to be able to be here and talk with you. And I hope that your listeners are able to get lunches, and if they have any questions, they're more than welcome to reach out to me. Okay, amazing. Thank you so much again, Morgan, and thank you all for joining us. Um, let us know if you have any questions. We can also respond to you on Facebook. Um, 
So reach out, take good care of yourself, take good care of your clients, honor your body and help your clients honor theirs. And we'll see you next time.